Hello and welcome to A Moon State of Crypto Brainstorm, where we come together once a week to discuss the latest trends and analysis in the crypto world. All opinions expressed by A Moon staff or guests of the podcast are solely their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment advice. This podcast is powered by Blockworks Group, the only events and podcast production company I trust. For access to the premier digital asset conferences and in-depth podcast content, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. We hope you had a stellar start of the new year and are ready to tackle 2020. As you might have seen on Twitter, LinkedIn, some of the deepest corners of Reddit, industry experts in the crypto market, as they tend to do at the end of every year, have shared their outlooks for the next year and the years to follow. I'm joined today by Ophelia Lanre and Hansen from our team to take a closer look at some of these predictions and trends that were identified by some of the most popular figures within the crypto asset industry to analyze the feasibility of them. In a nascent and volatile market like crypto, the range of potential outcomes is so wide that the task of making accurate predictions becomes ever harder. So without further ado, let's dive right in. All right. So we did a search for all the outlooks produced by important figures in the crypto asset space. And we have identified three of the most popular ones we'd like to discuss today. These outlooks are by Blockchain Capital, which is a blockchain venture capital company, by Masari, which is the research company, and Coinbase, one of the largest crypto exchanges. Now, each of these three reputable companies shared their predictions and trends for 2020, and I have them all in front of me. And if we look at the three different outlooks, some of the trends they predict coincide with each other and others are opposing, right? So let's start with one of uh, the most, let's start with one that most of the outlooks agree upon, um, which is that there will be increased M&A activity in crypto. So the first prediction that blockchain capital makes uh, for 2020 is that a crypto company will be required uh, for more than 500 million in 2020. And they've identified that M&A activity overall has increased already. Uh, but so far, the M&A activity in crypto has been internal. But they claim that this year will be the year where it moves outwards. And there's you know, ample examples of that. For example, Circle bought Poloniex in 2018, I believe. And last year, they sold it again to, to, um, to Tron partly. Then Coinbase bought Zakpo. Binance bought Debt Review, um, and we've seen the first outside company, which is PwC, bought Chain Security here in Zurich. And the same, Masari supports this claim. They say, regardless of the market direction, uh, they think the M&A activity will increase. So the number of deals increases in the bear market, but the size of deals will increase in the bull market. Now, what do you guys think about that? Do you agree with them that you think M&A activity will increase? in the next year and years to come? So I'm happy to take this one. I think M&A activity, I, my prediction would be that it would continue to increase. Um, as long as I don't think we see a major uptick in either trading volumes or in um, let's call it network fundamentals, I think it'll be uh, challenging for a lot of firms uh, to stay afloat, especially with... Um, more constraints on things like venture capital and on um, the ICO market. 
So I think we will continue to see more consolidation, but I think that will largely be um, a good thing for the space. There are a lot of small projects, a lot of um, you know people looking at similar things, and consolidation is not necessarily a bad thing, especially given um, the explosion of new projects that occurred, you know, 2017, 2018. So I think we'll continue to see that as a trend. Um, as long as sort of prices remain in this range. Yeah, and then I can add onto that also. So I think one thing that blockchain capital pointed out is that they predicted maybe we're going to see our first acquisition for half a billion dollars. And if you look at the kind of players, at least within the space, who could potentially pull off a deal like that, pretty much only a handful of exchanges or pretty much only two exchanges are you know probably well positioned to make such a big acquisition based on how much cash or cash equivalents they probably likely have on their balance sheet. So this would be Coinbase or Binance. And then taking a step back, when you think about those two exchanges' product strategies over the last year, both, especially Binance, have probably entered 10 to 20 different verticals, whether it be from derivatives to stake-in to lending, and Coinbase have done similar. And at the same time, uh, Coinbase have kind of slowly have already started making acquisitions to kind of vertically integrate a bit better. For example, they acquired Zappos acquisition business in the next year. So I can imagine exchanges like those, or maybe just those two exchanges using acquisitions as a way to further their goals of becoming, you know, more full stack, as you say. And as, as Philia said, this consolidation isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I think especially when you look at certain sectors of the industry, which are perhaps more esoteric and where there already seems to be quite a bit of consolidation, maybe this is something that, you know, as analysts, we have to keep an eye on. For example, stake-in. One thing, one trend throughout 2019 we've seen, which could be, you know, made a bit more precarious because of consolidation is pretty much the biggest stakers in any given uh, proof-of-stake crypto asset are either, are pretty much only well-known exchanges. And so if there's large amounts of consolidation of uh, proof of stake offerers, especially by via acquisition by exchanges, then we do get into concerns over, you know, whether too much centralization, as we've seen in proof of work mining, is something to worry about. So yeah, I do agree that consolidation can be a good thing, especially in an industry full of so many small uh, undercapitalized startups, but especially for things like stake in, is something we have to keep an eye on because at some point it may become, you know, somewhat diametrically opposed to a lot of the ostensible reasons why people are interested in proof of stake assets, namely the decentralization. But I think so one I, of the I places think... that consolidation is probably a very good thing is um, on the trading side, right? You see a lot of small trading shops, a lot of OTC plays. And I think, um, you know, some of what you're seeing with Circle could point to consolidation in that space, which is not necessarily a bad thing in terms of aggregating liquidity. To take a little bit more of a crypto-centric viewpoint, um, I forget where I came across this, but someone suggested that we could start seeing actual protocols being taken over, uh, whether through consolidation or mergers or outright purchases. Um, and I think it, it, it followed the news of Binance investing, quote, tens of millions of dollars into FTX, 
because FTX has a token. And so they also put, um, apparently invested in, in the equity of the company as well as took sizable position in the tokens. And people were talking about, well, sometimes larger companies do this with uh, the option or the hope of potentially uh, acquiring the, um, the smaller company that they invested in later. What would that look like if Binance wanted to not just acquire FTX, but also the FTX token? I think it's FTT maybe. And that's a really interesting thing. So perhaps we can start seeing some of these projects out there that have tokens with um, perhaps the tokens are cheaper in total asset value than the balance sheet of the startups that are behind them. Um, perhaps there are arbitrage plays here. Perhaps we can start seeing uh, total outright, uh, uh, almost 51% attack-ish kind of takeovers that are more hostile in nature, but actually are done by a central authority. And so I think we can, on the equity side, I agree with what everyone has been saying. I, I think that there's something uh, super, super interesting there. I disagree with Coinbase and Binance being perfectly positioned for $500 million acquisitions because that is such a large sticker price that even them uh, will have issues doing that. But but I could see outside parties, the, the, the actual companies on the S&P 500 that have uh, tens of billions of dollars on their balance sheet or billions of dollars on their balance sheet and want to get into blockchain, $500 million as a sticker price could happen, but it, it would probably happen from someone, say, outside the industry. However, one of the things that I'm really keen on seeing sort of how it plays out is this concept of can hostile takeovers start to happen within the protocols themselves? And can uh, friendly mergers start to happen with just an ERC-20 token uh, swapping out another ERC-20 token with its own in some way? Um, I'd like to weigh in on that. So you address two points, Honey. One is, uh, you know, M&A or merger within the protocol layer. And the second part you addressed was that you believe 500 million as blockchain capital predicted is such a large number that if there's an acquisition of that size, it must or it's likely to come from the outside, which I 100% agree with. Could not imagine Coinbase spending 500 million on anything really. But let's start with the protocol uh, layer, which is interesting. Um, so we, in my last company, Port, we already discussed it as well. We discussed it from a user experience perspective. For instance, uh, in order to use the Mellon protocol to run a fund, you would need Ether as a token to pay for gas. If you're trading on decentralized exchanges, maybe 0x, you need 0x, plus you need the Mellon token to run the fund. Uh, three different tokens just to run a fund on, on Ethereum very bad user experience, unlikely that people will use it. And in that scenario, for example, it would make sense if, let's say, Melon and Zero X make a merge, and then you would reduce the friction uh, for the end user, which is ultimately one of the most important things to drive adoption. Um, so, you know, this could happen in the form of a token swap. Let's say company A and company B agree, company B which is smaller than company A, would switch their tokens one-to-one -one, um, in the market cap value to company A's tokens. An acquisition, uh, hostile acquisition, oof, maybe you guys have a bad idea. I don't, I don't really have a view on that right now. Um, but 
going back to the other point now, to the second point, which is that you know, if we see acquisition of the size of half a billion, it's likely to come from the outside. Do you guys think we are already at a stage in, in um, you know, acceptance of blockchain technology that a renowned company, you know, with a reputation, uh, would acquire a crypto company? Take a side this size. I think a very good way of thinking about that last question um, is where are the profit centers in crypto today? Where are the companies in crypto, let's say, just doing um, um, tens of millions of dollars in revenue? And it's predominantly I mean, in places like trading, OTC, etc. right? Can you think of other things? No, 100% agree with you. So mining is profitable and exchanges. That's a, basically the two most profit-making companies in crypto. Exactly. So let's say trading and mining. Then I think a, a further step up would be thinking about, well, what companies make hundreds or hundreds of millions or billions of dollars on those two same activities? I don't know what mining is analogous to because it's not exactly a mining company, but perhaps, uh, and I, I, I don't know where exactly this would be, but perhaps a data center company or perhaps some, someone with excessive computing power, um, perhaps someone that is investing in the space heavily, but is not a crypto company. So, uh, for example, SBI or Rakuten or uh, GMO, right? In that aspect of it. On the other side, um, where are people making money trading? Well, there are exchanges in the world. There are stock exchanges and there's um, mercantile exchanges, uh, commodities, etc. And I could see someone going in on that front. There are market makers, prime brokerages, etc. And I think that's sort of the realm of the um, outside potential acquisitions because there are a lot of folks in the space that are making very good money with very good uh, margins and are are building brands for the long term that will have a high uh, brand equity. And so perhaps those would be, uh, if, if you start thinking more about the profit centers, where we could see some early uh, outside acquisition targets. Very interesting. Um, all right, let's move to the next uh, prediction or trend outlined by some of our outlooks. So Coinbase um, claims that they believe in 2020 and actually in the 2020s, there will be a rise of crypto startups. Um, so far, most crypto companies that make money, as we just said, you know, are mining or trading or exchanges. And Coinbase claims they think that um, the trend will shift towards utility rather than trading which I interpret as that crypto companies will actually use the blockchain to, to improve the current process. Um, now, they claim, right, just like, you know, when the internet boom happened, um, the idea of an internet startup began, and now every single company in the world uses the internet in some way. And Brian claims that, you know, at the end of 2020, he thinks that most companies will be using some aspect of the blockchain um, for their business as well. Um, maybe the first idea to do would be to raise money, which we've seen works uh, so far. And then obviously there are some advantages of using the blockchain. You can reach a global community much easier. Um, but what do you guys think? Do you guys think that in the next year and the next 10 years, we'll see most startup incorporating 
crypto or blockchain in one way or another in their business? I think what will make like so if you look about especially going back to the fundraising point. So I think crypto's biggest use case, or one of crypto's biggest use cases, has undoubtedly been the ability is given to some companies to raise money uh, in, in ways in which they wouldn't have been able to. So I think Binance is the, you know, prototypical example of that. And I, I imagine we're probably going to see many more companies, or I, I imagine that is probably going to be, you know, the archetype of how companies, in, like how companies decide to use crypto going forward. And I can see, I see this being the, the majority of the ways which in which companies tend to use crypto going forward in the next 10 years, uh, especially as there's more consensus reached around, oh, what ways can a company legitimately include a cryptocurrency or crypto token into their overall business model without it leaning to outward negative externalities? And I think Binance is a company that's managed to find a good kind of middle ground whilst ensuring that the company still runs well and is still operational whilst also providing for the token holders in ways which which are useful. So, yeah, fundraising is the obvious use case, and I think it will continue to be like that because at the end of the day, I think crypto, for the most part, is a financial innovation. And I think, we'll, I think more companies will realize that if the incentives are done right, adding a token or fundraising for a token can also be a very interesting way to try to bootstrap this community development and community interest in a company which is why you see a company like Binance have a legion of fans and a legion of people really involved in the community, which you know maybe is unheard of for similar companies in other spaces. Yeah. Now to add to your point, Laura, um, so what do you think needs to happen um, for companies to really use blockchain elements in their, in their daily business? Because as of right now, right, if you use any crypto application, it's really cumbersome still. And, you know, I, I can see that you know, people said in 2017, hey, in 2018 and 2019, we'll see the first companies actually have use cases for blockchain and a lot of users. But until today, the number of users is still very low. Um, and, you know, another part that will add to it is uh, the scalability, which Coinbase predicts to be uh, one of the main things that will improve over the next decade is a crucial um, it's a crucial step that needs to be solved first before you know companies can use the blockchain regularly. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, like I definitely, even though I definitely understand that user experience and scalability are not where they need to be in crypto, I often feel that those two topics in, in particular are often just massive misnomers. Uh, in terms of people use them as a re people use them to always justify why crypto perhaps hasn't had the adoption which is necessary without understanding kind of what niches crypto has already managed to fill thus far for example so i think maybe in 2017 when things like crypto kitties were starting to gain some traction in crypto that was the understanding that oh these smart contracts would their primary use cases cases would be for kind of decentralized consumer facing applications and I don't think that's any going to be the case. Even if there was really good scalability, I still don't know if there's if the, if the lowest hanging fruit for crypto adoption would be something like CryptoKitties. But rather, I think 
even in the case where scalability is improved in Ethereum or Bitcoin, for example, and wallets offer intuitive user experiences, I think the application and the use cases you're going to see succeed the most will still be financial applications and still be things like, which allow people to easily make prediction markets or things like that. And not necessarily, you know, an iPhone app. Mm, so, and at the same time, I think if you look at kind of the, the applications which have come to prominence in the last years, on Ethereum especially, so a lot of de decentralized app financial applications, so Compound or MakerDAO or Syn Synthetic or DYDX, a lot of these applications just, a lot, I, I imagine, imagine a lot of developers now understand that, yeah, consumer applications aren't things that are going to be as interesting for users as fi more financial-based applications. And that's why we've seen such a massive trend towards DeFi and Ethereum, whilst in 2017, a lot more people were interested in building, you know, video games or other things like that, if that makes sense. On this topic, I feel like um, the, the strongest and initial use case of crypto, non-sovereign store of value, gold 2.0, still hasn't happened quite yet. And I'm, I'm appreciative of all the blockchain applications, but we're still building infrastructure for even the first use case. That I think some of these predictions happening in 2020 could be a little more ambitious than what ends up occurring. I think that DeFi will continue to increase, whether DeFi gets to 100 billion um, soon or whether it's able to get to 100 billion soon. I don't think that's that's necessarily possible before Bitcoin gets to be in the trillions. I think that's a common thing with predictions though, right? And I think certainly in this space, I think we, like hype cycles are a real thing. And, and I agree with you. I think we, there's an enormous amount of promise here. I think the amount of time it will take to actually come to market in the way people hope will be a longer road. And I think to some degree will involve um, a broader macro view. It, there are a lot of elements here that depend on global macroeconomic conditions, um, the global financial system and regulatory infrastructure and elements that do take quite some time to get into place in the right way, especially when you're talking about things like DeFi. And I think that that will take time. And I agree with you that I think it's likely that, you know, Bitcoin will reach some very significant levels before we see um, markets develop in the, you know, billions and trillions scale. Yeah, I totally agree with that, Ophelia. Um, each of you has touched on DeFi, so we're jumping the gun a bit. I want to add one more thing um, to the topic of, um, you know, crypto startups, uh, and then we can go over to the predictions of DeFi. So, like we all said, right, we're not there yet. Um, some on, on the infrastructure level, there's still work to be done for the first use case of crypto, which is a store of value. Um, so we do think, uh, you know, more and more companies will use blockchain applications or integrate it in their processes. Uh, but maybe it's a bit optimistic for, you know, to, like like Coinbase claims that every single startup or a majority of them will use blockchain elements in their business. But I think that, you know, 
if if in one field or in one area where those crypto startups might increase faster, it might be in the emerging markets. You know, we had an episode on crypto in Africa, and that's a clear case for for some of the emerging countries to use the blockchain. Uh, you know, partly because they don't have access to banking. So yeah, um, I think in the emerging markets field, crypto might be growing faster than in other fields. Or not faster, but it will grow there. I forgot which one of the uh, big predictions. I, I think we, we looked at what, Masari, Coinbase, and blockchain, blockchain capital, capital, right? Uh, one of them said something along the lines of the unbanked will remain unbanked. I think that's absolutely wrong. Um, I think the... Uh, the developers and the movements behind DeFi and crypto has, if anything, been a really global movement. DeFi is going to face a tremendous amount of issues, um, I think, in countries with higher regulatory barriers. And it's, it's not, um, I don't think it's a coincidence that the largest derivatives market in the space happens to be out of a country uh, called the Seychelles, Right something that no one is really thinking about as a financial capital. Um, and by the way, the Seychelles happen to be an African country, right? And I, I think more and more of these kinds of things will happen because at the end of the day, DeFi is a really interesting thing in theory to a lot of countries, but there are some countries where DeFi um, promises a much larger opportunity set than in others and and we 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 see this in places like the seychelles where you know their hundred thousand strong population is benefiting a lot from certainly companies basing themselves there but you're going to start now seeing more uh i think countries in the west with higher regulatory standards will have a tougher time with some of these DeFi elements while all of a sudden you'll be able to start global companies um, out of uh, territories, perhaps in Africa, perhaps in Asia, perhaps perhaps elsewhere, perhaps uh, th- these will be based in Europe or the or the West, uh, that will specifically be targeting consumers outside of, let's say, the Western typical focus areas. Yeah, and uh, let's add some numbers to it. Um, so you said Seychelles is one of the main countries for you know DeFi. Uh, as of right now, I think Masari claims, or I saw on Masari that around $650 million worth of um, cryptocurrencies are locked in DeFi protocols. And blockchain capital predicts that in 2020, the number 650 million will rise to 5 billion. So 5 billion being locked in, in um, you know, DeFi protocols. Now, Which right- is going to start being this new area of, uh, of revenue generation. So we, we, we talked to, we talked earlier of like who is making money in the space right now. It's people that are doing trading activities um, and it's... Uh, mining, we said. Mining, right? So trading activities, mining. DeFi is going to be a third grade revenue generator and people are already seeing some of this with lending, with, with other sorts of products that are coming out. And um, I, I didn't mean the Seychelles as a consumer hub because certainly it's 100,000 people, the entire country. It's not a lot of consumers, but... Uh, the fact that uh, the largest derivatives market in the space, BitMEX, is is domiciled there, as are a few other crypto companies, 
I think is, is going to help uh, things out there. And I could see those countries today targeting a lot of people on a global basis in a lot of lands, countries where perhaps the fiscal situation is not as strong. I could totally see that. Um, so uh, you are saying that the regularly constraints put on traditional financial companies could be one of the factors that contributes to DeFi growing faster. Is that what you're... Is this one of the points you're saying, honey? Yeah, mostly that the uh, the growth of DeFi is going to be a global non-Western movement uh, predominantly. And that there is going to be a lot of potential revenue generation there that uh, a potentially virtuous cycle where a lot of people are making money in DeFi targeting African, Asian, non-Western consumers will attract more people in DeFi targeting those same populations, will elevate the bar further and further. And I think this is one of those really unique value uh, potential points uh, with respect to crypto and let's say the non-Western typical financial world that we keep hearing about uh, usually in finance. Yeah. And actually, I mean, to be more specific with some numbers, as of right now, majority of... Um, Money locked in different protocols. You guys have a guess where it is? Compound, you say? Or Maker? Yeah, that's the two main ones. Maker and it's the number one, uh, and then and then Compound. And when we talk about Maker, uh, that could lead us right to stable coins as well, which is an important element of DeFi overall. Um, and the salary actually in their outlook for the next year and decade is that stable coins will soon eclipse Bitcoin in size. I thought that was a very interesting prediction they made. Um, I mean, right now, I'm, I didn't check. I think Bitcoin's market cap is 143 billion. Tether's largest, uh, uh, Tether, which is the largest uh, stable coin, has a market cap, I think, of 4 billion. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so we are still quite far away. But I thought that interesting that Masari thinks that stable coins will grow you know, to be bigger than Bitcoin. I think that shows their faith so you said Tether is four billion, and I think and, so. Let me Bitcoin check right is, now. Uh, one hundred and fifty. Okay, yeah, one hundred forty-five. So, what do you think happens first? Uh, the amount of dollars in the digital crypto world goes up thirty-eight x, or the value of Bitcoin goes thirty-eight x. That would be four hundred thousand for 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 the for the easy math. I think this is partially a semantics question. So going, like, going to answer Candy's question, I think the first is more likely, at least if you accept that. Under, I think the, the way Masari was trying to describe it, they considered stable coins to include things like Libra, to include things like China's uh, digital currency project and any similar digital currency project. So the stable coin market could come to overtake Bitcoin the stable coins included in that in the ecosystem would be quite different from DAI or quite different from Tether. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Lena. Like, I, I think this is such a simple, no-brainer prediction. Um, yeah, I think there will be uh, there will be a hundred and fifty billion dollars. Sorry, hundred and fifty billion dollars worth of digital fiat currencies that represent in the crypto market before Bitcoin gets to close to seven or $8 trillion in total market cap. 
Of course. But that seems that sort of sense. like a, to some degree, a non-statement, right? Because if you look at, if you think about stable coins, and if you're willing to include in your categorization of stable coins, things like um, state-sponsored um, crypto assets and state-sponsored digital currencies and Libra, basically what you're saying is these are sort of digital, the, the digital representations of the dollar or insert other currency here. The market for dollars is much larger than anything we've seen for Bitcoin to date, obviously. And so on a percentage basis, it feels sort of odd to even compare these two things. Like I, th- I think it sounds really, really cool, but it, but then you analyze it for five seconds. And you're well, like, that and it also lumps yeah, together a bunch of different I stuff, so. right? At the end of the day, like if the Chinese state issues a state-sponsored currency that happens to live on a blockchain, that's a wildly different proposition than like growing decentralized assets. It's not really an apples to apples comparison and it has largely nothing to do with Libra. Um, and so it also feels sort of weird to include all of those things together. Because I agree with you. I think it sounds awesome on paper, but I think if you actually look at it, it's sort of a non-statement. Exactly. And basically they're saying the dollars that are right now in data points and banks or in cash will be in digital form well, on a blockchain uh, in a huge market. Tiny Maybe we can infer from that. Those will be. Go ahead. I think that's the other piece, right? Like it's a very small sliver if that's the uh, of course. realm you're looking at. Especially if we're including dollars, yen, zeros, yuan, right? It's, <laughs> what are we talking about here? <laughs> but yeah, I, I think, of course, goes without saying, everyone agrees. Yeah, but maybe one point we can add to that is maybe Messari meant that they have lots of faith into DeFi, that you know it's easier to move tokenized dollars or yuan around uh, on protocols than you know in fiat form. So maybe that's the most uh, you know predictive thing we can take out of that. I would put a nuance um, on that. I would say maybe the most predictive thing is that we are going to improve like user experience when trying to do those kinds of transfers. I think right now, while it certainly is faster to settle, it's painful um, for most people to actually transact using crypto assets or stable coins to do really anything, um, whether that's trading or whether that's um, certain types of financial products or whatever that ends up looking like. And I think we maybe that's what we could say this prediction represents, right? Real usability and user friendliness of these platforms, which I think has sorely been lacking over the last couple of years. Certainly has improved, but has a long way to go if it's going to compete with a debit card. Yeah, for sure. All right, we're slowly running out of time, guys. I have one last question regarding Blockchain Capital's last prediction. And please give me short one one sentence answer or yes or no. Blockchain Capital says, they believe that in 2020, the Bitcoin price will blow past all-time highs, meaning that by the 31st of December 2020, the price of Bitcoin will be above the last high of, I think, 20,000. Do you think do you guys think that's uh, realistic? Um, yeah. It's not out of the realm of possibility. I don't think it's a crazy prediction. But So to your question, is it realistic? Yes. There are... Um, a few things that could happen that could very easily push it up. Yeah. Lanre, what do you think? 
Personally, I think it's slightly unlikely, but I've always been a bit more of a conservative when it comes to price predictions. Uh, I think the biggest drivers are some of these, as we mentioned, digital currency projects and the extent to which uh, they are somewhat compatible with existing crypto infrastructure. So will Libra be traded on crypto exchanges and will there be crypto pairs with Bitcoin and the same with some of these other digital currency projects? I think in that case, that could you know drive adoption straight to Bitcoin and crypto. In other cases, then I think that kind of prediction seems a bit more unlikely, but it's always a possibility. Also a good answer. Ophelia, lastly, your view? I think, I think this is going to be a very interesting year in terms of Bitcoin especially. I think, yes, a lot of people are predicting new highs. Yes, there are a lot of predictions out there for how the space is going to evolve. I think, and honestly, I think a lot of this is going to come down to what happens in the macro world, right? I think between what's happening with Iran this week and the US and uncertainty with China and trade wars, and there's quite a bit of macro level financial uncertainty and, and to some degree, like nervousness. And I think the end result of those issues will be a significant driver for what the value of Bitcoin um, and quite frankly, the progression of all of these predictions into the next year. And so I, I realize it's sort of a, I think the answer here is really, it, it depends so much on the macro climate. And I think that is so nebulous right now. We'll have maybe more clarity into what's going on as we head into getting closer to the U.S. elections, um, and as you know, sort of some of this trade imbalance stuff works itself out. That it may be simpler to make more accurate predictions, but I do see a lot of upside in Bitcoin, especially this year, given all of that sort of latent, um, let's call it insecurity and instability in the system. With that said, I think we should wrap up because we're uh, slowly running out of time. I think one of the things that we should probably do is come back in six to nine months and uh, have another episode of just talking about these predictions and how far we've come or how far off we might be. I, I think that could be a cool idea for what we do then. Um, until then, though, um, we'll see you guys in... Um, uh, on the next episode very, very soon. And we look forward to doing a lot more of these in 2020. This was it from the Amun team. Thanks for listening. And if you have any questions or would like to see your topic on our next episode, reach out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn. We'll see you next week. Bye.